I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Eric Conrad. Eric is a SANS senior instructor and the lead author of the SANS training program for the CISSP, as well as a co-author of both continuous monitoring and security operations and web application pen testing and ethical hacking. He's also the lead author of the books, the CISSP Study Guide and the 11th Hour CISSP Study Guide. Eric's career began in 1991 as a Unix system administrator for a small oceanographic communications company. He gained information security experience in a variety of industries, including research, education, power, internet, and healthcare. He is now CTO of Backshore Communications, a company focusing on hunt teaming, intrusion detection, incident handling, and penetration testing. He's a graduate of the SANS Technology Institute with a Master's of Science degree in Information Security Engineering. In addition to the CISSP, he holds a prestigious GIAC Security Expert or GSE certification, as well as several other GIAC certifications. Eric blogs about information security at ericconrad.com. In this episode, we discuss starting in IT before there was even InfoSec, the value of certifications, making blue teams sexy again, teaching for SANS, what makes a good cybersecurity professional, threat hunting, the importance of PowerShell, his deep blue CLI tool, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Eric, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Doing well. How are you doing? Doing quite well. Um, you know, so I was kind of going back and looking at your history and see that you've been, you know, you, you were yet another uh, person in the industry that started out in more of an IT role before really kind of moving into information security. How did you kind of get started from your early Unix days in uh, oceanography to becoming a security professional? Sure. So I, um, well, the first job was kind of like the first job I could get kind of a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was an English major, a comp sci minor in college. And it's funny, it's funny hearing is about every six months, there's some crazy backlash on Twitter where people are saying, you know, never hire a BA to do a BS job, you know, and, um, you know, and once in a while, there's it just happened recently because the CSO of Equifax had a music degree. Mm -hmm. And I kind of chuckle at that because when I went through college, a comp sci major was really a math major plus some programming. And a lot of folks like myself weren't super jazzed up about being a math major. Um, so in an ideal world, I would have been a double major, English and um, comp sci. But in the end, I had to kind of graduate because I was a blue collar kid. So I graduated with an English major writing concentration, comp sci minor. And that was a problem up front. It's become a great boon in my career since. But trying to get that first job with the wrong major was difficult. So I landed at that oceanography comp- company. They advertised for an electronic shepherd. I remember that. It's <laughs> a great title. And, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which, yeah. And I was like junior PC tech, you know, printer and jammer kind of a thing. Uh, I remember I was making $21,000 a year. That was my first real job. And um, Unix system and left. So he kind of groomed me for his position. I took that. 
and this is, you know, I'm dating myself now. This is 1991. And uh, everyone then was a jack of all trades, security being one of those things. And um, later on, and I, I heard Johannes on your last show talking about this. A lot of our, our InfoSec careers start with a breach, you know. So I was working for a different company then, a Japanese multinational whose um, main research lab was in Kendall Square, Mass, in, um, in Cambridge, Mass. And uh, rather, and um, we get hacked in 93. I was a Unix sysadmin for them, you know, first generation rootkit on the old SunOS, you know, the, the true BSD style SunOS pre Solaris. And just handling that incident blew my mind. You know, I, I just saw hackers, you know, they, they broke in. We hadn't invented the term rootkit yet. So we called them Trojans. And, you know, they, they replaced the login program, they replaced the Telnet client dating the story. You know, SSH didn't exist, exist yet. And they kind of, warped reality is how I saw it. And we're making the system do things that I didn't think it could do. You know, it was logging all the credentials on the inbound, it was logging all the credentials on the outbound. And again, all Unix systems back then were kind of jack of all trades. And I was paranoid enough, but I installed some additional logging, you know, TCB wrappers, and I, I saw it. And they were wiping the logs, but they were leaving, that they weren't wiping the additional logging I had set up. And once I saw that incident, I handled that incident. And the report I wrote ended up going to the you know, the, the headquarters in Japan of wh what that incident was, you know, before I even knew what incident handling was, I just knew in my bones, you know, that that was my career, internet plus that. And I immediately began seeking out full-time security work in 93 and Boston University had a full-time InfoSec role, which I started there in 94 you know, and the rest is history. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. I started in the uh, the early '90s myself, and kind of a similar path. And you know, everybody's saying, "Well, you know, you like computers and technology. Just go get a computer science degree." And when I started looking at it, the the unsexiness of programming mainframes kind of turned me off from it. <laughs> and it wasn't really the the path I wanted. And then found you know other areas of IT, and then kind of went along that same thing. Of, I think it, we all. In, in the you know in the 90s and early 2000s you become that jack of all trades and people say well how long have you been doing security I was like pretty much my whole career at some point or another you're, you're doing it it wasn't a role back then it was just something you did as part of your day job um, but it's interesting to see it now kind of develop and grow and certainly you touched on the, the, the you know the point about you know background and, and training and education and you've now taught for quite a bit with sans how did you kind of then move and morph into a, a teacher and developing course material Sure. So I was, I kind of topped out. I, I live in a place called Peaks Island, Maine now. I'm from Boston originally. But the past 20 years, I live in this island in Portland Harbor. You take a ferry out here. And coming from Boston, I guess I didn't realize how limiting, how limited the, the, the main tech uh, industry is. It's, it's bigger now, but it's nothing compared to Boston. And certainly 20 years ago, it was a shadow of what it is now. And I confidently moved to this island because I wanted a nice place to raise kids. And my career was, you know, severely impacted by a lack of options. Because by that point, 20 years ago, I mean, I'd been around, you know, a, a while. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was looking for that, you know, senior kind of lead architect kind of role, senior technical lead. And it didn't really exist here. And I was trying to come up with a way where I could live in this island and still have a good career. And I knew that wasn't probably by making the money in Maine. And I got to SANS as a student. I'd never done any training. I'd never done any teaching. I'd never done any public speaking. I had none of that. In fact, I had a terrible fear of public speaking, as many people do. But, you know, I was a CISSP. I self-studied for that. And I wanted CPEs. And the SANS marketing arm found me, as they found many of us. And I walked in as a student. And I'd kind of blown off. I had totally blown off training at that point, InfoSec training, because the previous trainers that I'd seen 
or full-time InfoSec trainers. And if you're a full-time trainer in this industry, you are by definition out of touch. Uh, there's no way you could be, you know, in touch, um, up to date if you're training, you know, 50 weeks a year. It's just not possible. And I saw these jokers reading slides on other non-SANS training, and I just turned off by it. You know, I was kind of thinking, give me the books, I'll leave. And then I, SANS found me because I needed CPEs as a student. I saw George Backos, I think this is 2003, and I was just blown away. George works for a large defense contractor. He does some really badass stuff. You know, some of the stories you hear about in the news, they don't mention the geeks behind the, you know, the scene. And I know a lot of those geeks behind the scenes, and he's one of them. And he handles some major incidents. And uh, I was just completely impressed by his energy, his passion, his experience, and his skill. And I didn't know this model existed where you could do that kind of stuff 40 weeks a year and be in the industry and handle serious stuff and do whatever you're doing. And then spend, you know, six, 10, you know, 12 weeks a year. You know, George probably teaches six. I teach more like 12, 13, 14. I didn't know the model existed. I was intrigued by it. And it seemed like a ridiculous thought that I could do that, having never spoken or anything. But that kind of seed was planted. And then a year later, I came back for another round of CPs and I saw, um, saw Ed Scotus. And I thought, okay, maybe George is an, is an outlier. He's some anomaly or something. And I saw Ed do it. And um, I'm like, well, okay, not an anomaly. Two guys are doing this, and maybe I could. And and then Sands had just kicked off the mentor program. And if you if you listen to this, just uh, go to sands.org/teach. And if you want to hear me talk about that in more detail, but basically, if you get a GX cert over 85, which I'd done, um, or pass a CI SSP, they invite you to mentor. And I didn't really know what mentor was. They just invented the program. And I mainly wanted to network better with people. I, I learned that lesson in the dot-com bubble. I got laid off the only time really in my career. I was unemployed for the, only, for the first time since I was 13 years old with a paper route. You know, I'm a blue-collar kid. I'm a worker. And that kind of permanently scarred me in a good way because I learned lessons. And I just I hadn't networked enough. So I was using kind of SANS as a way to network with people because I'm not the world's most natural networker. And I entered Mentor mainly to network, and I had no idea it could lead to being a full-time instructor, not a full-time instructor, rather a certified instructor and higher. Um, I didn't know that path existed. I did it to network. And then the thing with SANS, if you do good work and you work hard, uh, the doors, at least for me, keep opening up. Yeah, that's what I found. It's it's it, my, my involvement with SANS on this has been very, uh, my history with SANS so far has been very good. It's, you meet a lot of great people, but people that definitely, as you kind of mentioned, are in the trenches. They get their hands dirty. You hear some real right. world stories and you have that uh, ability to apply what you learn uh, in some real world scenarios. Uh, and, but you did touch on the CISSP and I know you have a GSE, which is a, you know, the, the dream of a lot of people I know in the industry to get because it's a, it's a hard, uh, hard certification to get. Um, sure. But how would you also kind of differentiate between training and certifications? Sure. So uh, it's funny. I, I mentioned there's a bit of backlash against uh, BAs, at least in the Twitter sphere, which always kind of ramps up once in a while. I see the same thing with certification once in a while, and, and you see people kind of knocking certs. And you know, the way I look at certification is it's it's money in the bank. It's it's a rainy day fund that maybe you need and maybe you don't, and maybe you need it today, maybe you don't. It's funny when I first started getting my certs in my last company, I've been running my own company for over nine years now. Um, uh, as a CTO, it was very small, kind of boutique style. I mean, we do incident handling, we do threat hunting, we do pen testing, et cetera. But I've been doing that for nine plus years. Um, before my last full-time job as an employee was I was a HIPAA security officer for the second largest healthcare provider in New England and also the manager simultaneously, which is nuts, the manager of network security and security engineering. And they would pay for annual training, but they did not – culturally, they didn't care about certs at all. They did not care. Uh, but they pay for it. And I'm no fool. If I'm there for a week and I'll pay for that and the cert, I'll get the cert because it's 
to me, you're investing in yourself. You always want to invest in an appreciating asset and not yourself. And I got those certs. And even then, I remember, you know, coworkers of mine, not employees, but peers and, you know, employees of peers, they're like, why are you getting those certs? They see me studying. You see the big stack of sand books and I get the index going, all the stuff GX people do, you know, students do. And um, like, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, I want the cert. And they're like, well, the company doesn't care. Like, the idea was I was somehow foolishly wasting my time. <laughs> and I just got a cert a year, and that led to the GSE because the GSE has a bunch of prereqs. But obviously, you know, and some of the backlash you see online is, you know, you know, you, and I was wrong initially. Back in like 2000, when the dot com bubble hit, I thought it should be self evidently obvious that I was great and uh, I didn't need a piece of paper to prove that. That's what I thought. And what I learned is it doesn't really matter what you think, the industry has decided that that's important. Now, maybe you reach like this level of awesomeness, like you reach like a Mudge level or an HD Moore level or, you know, um, uh, Benjamin Delpy level where you transcend all that. Sure. You transcend all that. You rise above it. Your awesomeness is so awesome that you, you know, unarguable that you just level above that. I, I can tell you I'm not there. And when I see the people online kind of knock on certs, some of them are at that level. They've just kind of transcended it all. And that's a great level of awesomeness. But in my company's biggest contract for years was U.S. Department of Defense and um, doing a blue team project for them. Um, and we travel around the world supporting their combatant commands. That's our, um, that's our client. And everyone on that program needs to have um, CISSP, everyone, everyone in a technical role. And that was easy for me. I already had it. So, you know, certs act in a lot of ways. Um, my favorite cert is the GSE. You mentioned that. Some certs are, you know, it shows a level of due care and due diligence and investment in your career. CISP certainly speaks to that. Um, it, and TISP clearly doesn't demonstrate any hands-on. But I did learn a lot about CISP coming straight from the trenches, as I described, like learning to talk and return on investment, total cost, cost of ownership. Those concepts I was very weak on, and I, I paid the price because I remember talking to people in power, CIOs, whatever, wanted to buy Control X, and it was obvious to me why we needed it, and the answer was often no. And what I realized later, not then, was that I wasn't I wasn't talking in their language. I was just giving a bunch of technical, you know, um, noise, and they weren't understanding it. And later on, when I learned the concept of total cost of ownership, return on investment, things like that. I started kind of moving the ball forward. So certs can act as uh, I've done the time, I've, I've done the effort, put the effort in, and this proves it. And yes, there's an HR filter there, and that's why it gets kind of a knock. But some of the certs, like GSE, demonstrate a certain level of just awesomeness, in my very, very biased opinion. And you know, the GSE is, um, it ends in two days hands-on, two long eight-hour days where you're doing hands-on all day long. And passing that, I'm GSE number 13, and that's a cert I'm most proud of. Yeah, I think you're you're either the third or fourth GSE I've had on the show, and it's something that yeah, I, I think myself and a lot of people that I've I've worked with hold in high regard just because it's it's a marathon one. That the OSCP, even the GPE, sure. I mean, they're 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 hands on. You really have to kind of know your stuff. I mean, it's funny because even sitting on my desk right now, I have the uh, CISSP study guide that the third edition that you've kind of co-authored, yep. <laughs> yep. uh, and it's been one of those you know where I'm like you know I. I want to find some time to get this. I know I can do it. I just, uh, it's just finding the time to get that. And, and people ask me, you know, why, you know, why get it? And I, I, 
I think it's it does also help too with with particularly those in consulting. It's it's nice to have that where you give your clients a level of trust where they right. say, okay, you've you've at least um, gone to some level of and I and I hired somebody with that certification to do my security assessment or something like that. And it almost goes back to that old adage of you know nobody got fired for hiring IBM. And I think for that sure. same point, it's it can help your clients give a level of uh, trust when they go inside and have to get funding for consultants to say, look, I hired the, the people that had the right certs. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it, it does it does demonstrate that level of, you know, hey, I've, I've, I've covered this ground and I've talked to some people like, well, I could pass that easily. I'm like, well, do, then do it. You know, it's like, well, if I wanted to, I could get it. Well, then do it. You know, <laughs> like I self-studied. I, you know, I self-studied for that exam. And if you're experienced enough, you know, at that time I had been around about 10 years. And yeah, I, I bought a book, couple of books. I self-studied and I passed it. And yeah, to your point, maybe it'll hurt, maybe it'll help. But initially, I got the CISSP because dot-com bubble, I was getting shut out of job interviews. I couldn't cross that HR filter. And I hadn't reached that level of awesomeness where it didn't matter yet. I still haven't. And um, other candidates were getting ahead of me in line. Uh, job interviews I couldn't get into. Job interviews I got into, but the other candidate had this cert, and I did not have that cert. And suddenly, I'm on my heels. And uh, you don't want to be in that position, obviously. And certainly, from a consulting um, standpoint, you want to be the expert. And if some clients might care about that, and it's you can buy a book, self-study, or some people need more, obviously, why not do it? Right. And one of the other things that I, I caught you talking about, it was, I think it was on uh, uh, Paul.com's podcast, but <laughs> it was uh, bringing the sexy back to blue teaming. Can you kind of talk sure. to that a little bit about how do you get the sexy back to blue teams? Well, it's been brought. You can, uh, <laughs> there we go. It's done brought. Okay. <laughs> Served. So uh, me and one of the things, if uh, if you know me, if, if I feel that I'm right about something that's important, I become like really annoying. I, I just be, persistently will bring it up and bring it up and bring it up. And I was doing this with Sans, Seth and I. And, um, you know, and to just to kind of circle back on my other point, one of the reasons me and Seth uh, Meisner get along as well as we do is, you know, Sands was a great solution for me living on an island. When, when I saw Stephen Northcutt living, not just in Hawaii, but in Kauai, right. meaning when he flies to Hawaii, he's got another flight to take, you know? And I'm like, well, if he can do it from there, that's, you know, and so I kind of maxed out in Maine. Seth had maxed out in Jackson, Mississippi. And he was also a HIPAA security officer, interestingly enough. And he topped out, you know, in his 30s as I had. And uh, kind of looking at that challenge, and um, of how can I do this, live in this great place where my family and connections are, but, you know, not have a limited career. And um, both Seth and I felt that the blue team was was um, lacking in SANS. Like, if you look at SANS curriculum, especially a couple of years ago, it was about half pen testing of forensics courses. And I'm not taking anything away from pen testing or forensics. You know, I don't do much forensics. I do plenty of pen testing. That's all awesome stuff. And those courses are outstanding. I've taken both types but if you look at, if half the curriculum is pen testing forensics, you kind of draw that graph out. If you conclude that half of InfoSec people are forensics and pen testers, that's, we know that's not true. It's sub 5%, probably sub 3%. So if sub 5% of our industry does forensics and pen testing and half the curriculum is that, you know, as I told Sands and Seth did for years, we're, we're missing the boat here. There's an opportunity. And I firmly believe that you know chaos creates opportunity. If there's a problem, if we make that into a you know an opportunity, and so we said, how about a blue team? How about blue team? Initially, 511. Not that Sands didn't have blue team courses, we did, but they were they tended to be broad or narrow. Broad meaning like a 401 security essentials, 301 which builds into that, 501 which takes on after that. So you 
broad ones. And then you have deep, narrow ones like 505, which is the Windows track, and 506, which is the Unix track, and 503, which is you know, the packets track, not the formal names. But we didn't have like a broad, how do you defend a network kind of class? Uh, a little bit of Windows, a little bit of Linux, a little bit of architecture, operations, monitoring. We didn't really have that. And Seth and I pitched the idea for Security 511 for really years. And we are both persistent to the point of annoyance when we feel we're right. <laughs> and finally, it sounds like, fine, do it. And we wrote 5.11 and became a top 10 course. At, at the time, anyways, it was the fastest growing course in SANS history. And then SANS suddenly caught on that the blue team, there was an opportunity there. And like, the blue teamers didn't have like network style challenges. We didn't have coins. Um, you know, We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And Seth and I have worked to fix that. So we've debuted a number of, Seth and I are now co-curriculum leads of the Blue Team curriculum in SANS, Blue Team Operations, which is SANS's newest curriculum, or one of the two newest. And then 555, which is Tactical Sim and Analytics by Justin Henderson has debuted. I'm currently working on, with Justin Henderson as well, 530, which is Defensible Security Architecture. And we also debuted um, Cyber Defense NetWars, a, a Blue Team Challenge NetWars. And when people hear NetWars, they confuse the, the questions for the engine. NetWars really describes a scoring engine, a leaderboard with who's in first, second, third place, how many points you've scored, hints taken, things like that. NetWars is just a scoring engine. NetWars does not directly speak to the content. So you have NetWars challenges like Core NetWars, which is you know pen testing flavored and broader. You have the Defer, which is forensics, and in Orlando last year, which would have, uh, Orlando rather this year, which would have been March or April of this year, we debuted Cyber Defense NetWars. Basically, you're sitting in a SOC, you have access to Windows event logs, you have access to PCAPs, you have access to DNS logs and things like that. And the metaphor for the for that challenge is you're, you're a watcher on the walls. Um, this is a Game of Thrones Night's Watch theme. And level one is you're securing the walls, meaning um, Windows, Linux stuff, just general sysadmin stuff. Level two, the humans, the wildlings attack. Level three, the undead, the whites attack. And level four is the dreaded Night King. And there's 707, 777 total points because seven old gods, seven new, seven kingdoms, if you're a fan of the show. Right, right. <laughs> and um, it's um, it's all blue team challenge, and it's taken off like wildfire. Uh, we just ran it recently in Vegas, and it's been a total, total blast. And that's some of bringing the sexy back to blue team. We have coins for that. We have uh, coins for 511. Um, you know, and so now we have a cyber defense networks, two night extravaganza, just like the other ones get, and there's music and there's adult beverages and there's food. And that's what we mean by bringing the sexy back to blue team. When I was on Paul security weekly, Paul asked me, he's like, well, do employers tend to send their people to blue team challenges? I'm like, well, no, cause they haven't existed till now. Really? Right. I'm not saying none have existed. I think Splunk has one, but there's, I can count them on one hand, put it that way. Yeah, I, 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 until I heard you talking about it, I couldn't. Then I started thinking about it. I was like, oh, there's got to be others, and I, I really couldn't find or think of any others at that, at that point. And uh, with that, has anybody uh, gotten through level four yet? Uh, only one person has finished level four, and that's interesting. That speaking, uh, it's Justin Henderson. So he, he's lead. We had him tested. So one of the nice things, and and you referenced you had four GSEs on your show. I know a lot of GSEs. At one point, I'd shaken most of their hands. In person, I've lost track because it's almost 200 now, or maybe at 200. But when there was like 40 or 50, I had met most of them because every time they had the GSC practical, which is that two-day challenge, I would stop in. I just want to meet these people because I'm impressed by them. And uh, so we have this giant pool of talent we can tap and say, hey, in exchange for the shiny coin, will you test this thing? <laughs> <laughs> you can bait them in that way. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's a powerful motivator. The, the coin plus the box cost seven dollars, but <laughs> <laughs> right. If I said here's seven dollars, it wouldn't be nearly as enticing. And so we had a bunch of GSEs test. Now it's it's a blind test. They're testing blind just like a student would. And Justin Henderson ran through the whole thing, Night King and all, in under six hours, which is wow. um, unparalleled in history. Uh, I'm not terribly surprised because he's an amazing guy. Um, and so finding the Night King, and the Night King is designed to be aspirational. The way the game works is you've got a security onion sensor, full packet capture running. It's about four weeks of mayhem of a, you know, I have an uh, Active Directory um, domain set up, full packet capture for three or four weeks on a dedicated network. And you've got to sift through all that just like you do in a sock. And you've got, it's funny, one of the pieces of feedback we got is like, these PCAPs are too big because they start plowing through the full packet capture, PCAP logs, you know, yeah. or PCAP. And Security Onion, by default, it chops at 150 megs. So right. every 150 megs, it'll drop in a new block of data. Like, 150 megs is too much. You've got to slim that down. I'm like, you've got to slim that down, my friend. That That's on you, not on us. <laughs> and Because we all struggle with drowning in that data. We all do. That that describes a sock. It's finding the signal and the gigabytes and more of noise, you know. And so um, it's challenging. And levels levels one and two have full hints. And hints are free. They just work as a tiebreaker. Level three has one hint, um, a nudge, and level four has nothing. And level four is basically go find the Night King. It's somewhere in the data you've already looked at, and there's, there's gigabytes of it. <laughs> Dear God, yeah. <laughs> no, it's one thing I've learned that I, I, I can have a, a new appreciation for Ed Skoder to a bigger appreciation. You know, playing these games is fun, but making them and seeing people playing in the world you made is a whole different level of fun, man. I got to tell you, it's just, it's just seeing people just... <laughs> well, yeah. I'm walking around. You know, they're doing the hard work. I'm just chilling and hanging out, you know. And <laughs> well, um, Yeah, it's fun yeah. to watch the Holiday Hack Challenge every year and just watch, like, it kind of a morph online now and people talking about it. And I had a couple right. of my pen testers. And it's I'm like, how does how does Ed put this together? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a whole, and I've learned a lot from Ed. I have, because this is, Cyber Defense Networks is probably the fifth incarnation of Network style things I've built. And every time you try to make it a little better, as Ed, Ed does, he's, he's levels beyond me. But anyway, so Justin Henderson finished the whole thing. Uh, to have a student find the Night King is rare. Um, a couple of guys in Australia did in Melbourne. I think they were, I don't know this, but I believe they were ASD, which is their kind of NSA. But um, I'm, I'm proud to say in Vegas, about five or six teams or players found the Night King and actually put a dent in some of the Night King questions. They didn't answer all of them, wow. but one answered uh, about 40% of them, which is quite impressive. That's, uh, that is impressive. And, and so, you know, while we're staying on the, uh, the subject of sexy, you know, kind of the new sexy, I would say in InfoSec recently has been threat hunting and, and the kind of term gets used quite a bit. And I just kind of want to get your take on a, what, how you view what threat hunting is and, and how it's developing within our industry. Sure. So one of the, it's funny, I just had dinner with this guy named um, Eric Jacobson. Uh, he uh, is, I believe his title is security director at Boston University. And he probably be embarrassed to hear me talk, mentioning his name. But when I left BU in 96, he kind of stepped into my role there and he's been there since. And now he's director, which is amazing. And I had dinner with him. I was teaching in Boston, Sands Boston a couple months ago. And um, we were talking about that, the university experience and how I think every InfoSec a professional would benefit from like a two-year tour of duty at a university because, you know, you, you do have more corporate style networks there where the grades are and the money is, and they're, they're much more corporate, but then you have everything else, the dorm networks, the, uh, you know, um, academic networks. Now, I remember in 96, the flame war about whether we should have any filtering whatsoever to the internet, like anything. 
And this was like heresy and people were yelling and how dare you and information wants to be free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's, and it's still largely the wild west on the academic, on like the, the, the student style network. It's not on the other stuff and how uh, the all prevent defense does not exist there. And so what you do in that environment is you hunt, you, you know, that some system in, in physics, you know, which is admin by an undergrad is going to get knocked over. You know, these systems aren't, you know, maintained by an IT team. Generally, the network is, you know, and bring your own device came to universities first, you know, yeah. and, um, and you've got to somehow, and you can't just let the dumpster fire catch off and just, cause if you just let the whole network fester, the whole thing goes downhill because they use the pivot against you. They, I've been there. They, they use the pivot against other sites on the internet. Your IP addresses start getting blacklisted by people like spam house, been there, done that. And, um, you know, you, your mail starts bouncing because those net, those net blocks are, you know, dirty kind of, so to speak. And so what you learn then is this, this rapid response capability. So I, I've been hunting since then, 94, 96. And when I left the university, we didn't call it threat hunting then because the, the term hadn't been invented, at least not in our world. That's a military term. It comes from the kinetic world. Um, it goes back decades, you know, hunting a perimeter for people kind of a thing. A perimeter you believe to be secure and you hunt on the inside for intrusions that you have no evidence are there. That, that's threat hunting. That comes from the kinetic or the, the you know, the our world, <laughs> uh, non-electronic world, the real world. And uh, I just carry that over when I left the university. I just kept hunting. And I can tell you at that hospital chain that I mentioned, it was a nonprofit. We had a three-state WAN. We had 12,000 employees. We had over 15,000 pingable nodes, over 300 sites. Now, a, a site could be a hospital. A site could be a, a, an office with one doctor. A site could be a clinic. A site could be a lot of things. And about 100 of those sites had their own independent internet connections, like a dual home VPN back in kind of a thing. So we didn't have one internet connection. We had 100. And guess what? The skills I learned at Boston University scaled directly there. We, we just kept hunting. I just kept hunting. Because, you know, if we're in nonprofits, classically starve for money, starve for funding as we were. And I brought in interns and we just kept hunting. So I've been hunting for 20 years. And 5.11 is, has that built into its DNA. And we call it the presumption of compromise. All networks are currently owned. Your network is currently owned. And I, I say this to people, they start rolling their eyes. But I no, know. I'm talking about your network. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about your network. And they kind of roll their eyes like, well, where would Equifax be if they had the presumption of compromise? Equifax is an easy punching bag right now because we're all in that. You know, all of our data is in that. And they were owned for months they didn't know, which is very, very typical. They certainly had enough money to know. And I don't know what's going on in Equifax. I have no insight into that. I have nothing on the inside. But most of the Fortune 500 embraced what we call the all-prevent defense, which is preventive controls almost exclusively, shiny boxes, outsourcing, services. And, and that describes the all-prevent defense. And, and that worked fine, okay, in 2008, 2010. It's failing wholesale now. So you need the presumption of compromise. You need to be threat hunting. And people playing hot potato with where threat hunting goes. Do the incident handlers do it? Do the pen testers do it? Do the forensicators do it? I don't particularly care. I like people in my sim doing it, my, my sock rather doing it. And, and some, because all the data is there. And some sites kind of push back against that. Like, well, our sock is a bunch of 22-year-old kids who graduated from the help desk. I'm like, well, your sock is too junior. You know, if 90% of your sock is that, maybe... If all of your sock is kids out of college, and I was a kid out of college too, I'm not throwing that stone, but if that's all you have, if your entire sock lacks the experience and knowledge to threat hunt, your sock is too junior. Yeah, and, and that's that's where uh, where I think there's there's a call for a lot of that 
you know, when I, when I sit there, I look at the, the industry and continue to see the, um, the numbers about, oh, we don't have enough skilled people. There's not enough people. Thinking, well, I think it could also be a leadership problem as well. You can continue to throw bodies at the problem, but if they're not led the right way or trained the right way, right. you're not necessarily going to fill that gap that easily. Right. And uh, one of the nice things, and I, I kind of proved this at my last company, I was a nonprofit. I couldn't afford like senior engineers. Like I had like one or two of them. But the rest of my team was junior engineers and largely interns. I realized I could get interns for a price I could afford, like 10 bucks an hour or something. And I rolled interns through every summer. And then if they were good, I said, when you graduate, come talk to me, you know, and they graduate from their comp sci program or wherever. And I'd make them a deal. I'd say, listen, in a couple of years, I won't be able to afford you. But for two or three years, I can because you're straight out of college. And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll teach you everything I know. And if you give me two or three years, we're good. At some point, you'll level up and I won't be able to afford you. And that's cool. Just give me at least two years. And I had a bunch of interns take that deal. And they're all making you know a lot of money now. They're all very successful now. One's a CCIE now. And I taught them how to threat hunt. Now, not every intern could threat hunt, but most of mine could. It's not, it's not so much knowledge. Knowledge helps its mindset. And what's the nice thing about interns is they haven't learned the bad habits yet. They haven't gotten too stuck in their ways. Right. You know, some of my senior engineers were terrible threat hunters because they were just too rigid, you know? And if I can train an intern, I can train a 22-year-old kid in a sock. Yeah. You know, not all of them. It's more of a mindset thing. But, you know, if you have a one or two senior folks in that sock with, you know, our kind of mindset and a team of kids, you know, I can move mountains with that, the right kids. Um, so it can be an inexpensive thing overall, but you do need some senior talent in the mix. And one of the other things I, I, I picked up on, I think it was what it was actually on the SANS 508 class on advanced forensics and threat hunting was the operational tempo of threat hunting, that it's more of a nine to five, that you're, you do go in with that assumed compromise, but you don't run around with your hair on fire necessarily like you might in an right. IR situation. Sure. So you go with a, a much different uh, tempo and pace than you would in, in maybe normal operations or, or security, blue teaming, or just regular forensics. That's a great point. I mean, with, with the incident handling or forensics, uh, the, the clock is ticking. And we've all, we've done that kind of work. I haven't done much forensics, but I've done plenty of incident handling. You feel that pressure of, you know, your, your boss is standing there or the CIO is standing there and what's going on, what's going on, what's the impact, who did this? And you feel that pressure. Whereas, you know, threat hunting, um, even though you believe something's wrong, you have no evidence, yet there is, it allows you to kind of spool it back a bit and be a little more creative and do like longer dives on data you know, my first successful threat hunt at the hospital chain was we're, we're trying to tackle the problem of encrypted malware, which was sending C2 via SSL. So it was a blind spot for us. So C2 is command and control. Most modern malware will quote phone home, you know, ET phone home. It'll establish a command and control channel. And we were squashing most of it, but we had a, we had a blind spot on SSL. Uh, we weren't inspecting it. We couldn't afford the blue code to do it. And we, we were just brainstorming of how would we find C2 via SSL? And just sitting around the table kicking ideas around. And they were like, well, we can't. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Let's look at this malware. And this malware phoned home every 60 seconds. And this one happened to be unencrypted. C2 every 60 seconds. I'm like, well, this one was plain text, but every 60 seconds, I can catch that too. Like, I don't care if it's encrypted or not. If it's beaconing out, we call that beaconing now. And so we look for beaconing. And that was, that was my brainstorm, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago. Let's look for beaconing. And we, we grabbed some firewall logs, we grabbed some proxy logs. I wrote a Perl script dating the story. And I, you know, we, we just carved the day in a 10 minute chunks. I called the script persistent.pl. And, you know, which systems on the inside sent data to the internet 
at least one packet every 10 minutes. 10 minutes was arbitrary, meaning from midnight to 1210, 1210 to 1220. There's six 10-minute chunks in an hour. There's 24 hours in a day. Which system set a packet in all of those chunks? I don't care if it's one or a thousand, tell me. Got a list of 87 odd things, most of which we knew about, tunnels and things do that, many of which we didn't know about. Um, 20 odd employees found gotomypc.com, reverse tunnels. We didn't know that was possible. Hmm. They had you know, remote access to their desktops, drag drop, move the mouse, the whole nine yards. We thought remote access required IPsec and dual factor authentication. They bypassed that. We had vendors doing the same thing by you know, violating our vendor remote access policy. We had no idea. There was some ankle biting stuff, some spyware and whatnot, low level stuff, you know, Comet Cursor or whatever the crud was. Yeah, weather toolbars. And then we found like nine other things that weren't any of that. And literally the first one we looked at, and my big mistake was this is 3.30 on a Friday. Never, never threat hunt at 3.30 on a Friday. No. Lesson learned. <laughs> no, it's, it's always 4 and, o'clock uh, on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, don't do it. Tuesday at 10 a.m. is my <laughs> advice. And it had been sending one packet every 60 seconds to the country of Panama for three weeks. Uh, nothing against any Panamanians listening. I'm sure it was a pivot point. We have no clinics in Panama. We have no hospitals in Panama. It was a botnet. And uh, we found it because we, you know, the presumption of compromise. But to your point, we weren't rushing. We were just shooting the breeze and brainstorming and kicking ideas around. Now, certainly once we found the botnet, we started rushing, but there is something nice about that luxury of time when you don't know it's there yet. It lets things breathe a little bit. Definitely. Now, and, and you kind of mentioned, you know, writing tools in Perl, and one of the tools that, that I've kind of followed that you wrote was Deep Blue CLI. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that does? Sure. So I've uh, uh, been fortunate enough to present at DerbyCon two years in a row now, six and seven, and I kept before that, I kept buying the ticket to go to DerbyCon. It's harder now. <laughs> yeah. But um, and then you know I travel all the time, and it work kept coming up, and I kept buying the ticket and not going. And I thought, well, if I if I pitch a talk and it's accepted, I'll have to go. So it's a way of forcing myself to go, and I'm so glad I did. And it was just basically threat hunting through Windows event logs. So um, in a Windows environment, I believe your Windows event logs remain the single best source of threat hunting data especially if you make a few tweaks to the logging configuration, including uh, command line uh, auditing on event 4688, which requires two GPO changes to get full data on, including Sysmon, if you can push it, and mm -hmm. including uh, PowerShell logging. It is the single best source of threat hunting data. And it, it's just ideas I've had kicking around for a while. Like, I talk to my clients. I'm like, okay, turn on event 4688, which is, you know, um, allows command line auditing if you turn on those two GPO changes, this is the security log. And I said, look for really, really long you know, um, commands, like over 500 byte commands. Like this, the, the command that launched the process is over 500 bytes or 1,000 bytes. And my clients would say, well, how do, I, how do I, in Splunk, how do I do this or how do I do that? I'm like, well, just grab event 4688 and parse the XML and, and grab this field and, and I've just lost them then. They're just staring blankly at me. I'm like, grab the event, they can do that. Parse the XML to grab this field and they're gone. They're just staring at the wall. I'm like, write a script, you know, nothing. Write a script to parse, and uh, very, very few socks um, have anyone scripting. And if you're listening to this, please, please have people script in your sock. If you're only, if everyone in your sock is limited to the, um, their, their, um, whatever dashboard view you have, you're limited by the creativity, not only the person who built that dashboard and the imagination and the skill and the vision of whoever built that dashboard you're also limited by all of those things by your vendor the, the creativity you know skill imagination of your vendor and many sim products can't parse the xml to grab that field and i kept giving that advice and very few were listening because hardly anyone scripts in a sock 
Uh, I wish more more would. And so I just decided to write the script. And I, I figured as a kind of an aspirational DerbyCon thing, because my PowerShell was a lot weaker than it is now, I just pitched that idea. And I got accepted a year ago for DerbyCon 6, and I wrote the tool Deep Blue CLI, which is hunting malice through Windows event logs, looking for long command lines, parsing the actual command line, looking for telltale signs um, and what we call now fileless malware. In the old days, malware like Metasploit and many, many other types of exploitation frameworks and straight up malware would drop a big fat exe in the file system and the temp folder in the system32 directory. And your endpoint protecting suite, your Symantec, your McAfee, whatever, would just eat that thing. And now it's moving towards, towards this fileless model where your system ex is exploited through some other mechanism, not PowerShell, but PowerShell is there for post-exploitation. And it uses PowerShell usually one of two ways, building a giant like 2,000 plus byte command line or using net web um, download client, which is kind of like wget for PowerShell, to pull in what we call stage two, um, meaning ramping up the malware. And it never actually saves anything in the file system. So there's nothing for your antivirus to squash in the file system. So it looks for signs of that post-exploitation. -ex it looks for um, PowerShell logs and other things like that. And it's been very, very successful. And so last year, I, I debuted that, I, that, that, that tool, Deep Blue CLI. This year, I updated a bunch and added uh, a Python port and also um, wrote Deep White, which is automatic um, detective whitelisting through um, Sysmon logs, where it can use a whitelist. If it's not on the whitelist, it'll grab the hash from every exe, DLL, and driver that's logged. If it's not whitelisted and it's not been seen before, it'll auto-submit the virus total using their free API, which allows one free submission every 15 seconds. It simply loops and waits 15 seconds, and it's an automatic detective whitelisting, um, all you know, totally free in uh, PowerShell. That's great. Yeah, and I think what <laughs> to your point, I think it's you know kind of going back to your earlier point about the single pane of glass as all the vendors like to sell for their uh, their, yeah. their 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 sock dashboards. But if you think about you know like a a window in a wall, that's all you're going to see. It's all you're going to see right. out is that, what they're showing you and what you can see through. But to be able to step back, to be able to script and do other things becomes more and more important. And we're certainly seeing more of the PowerShell becoming a, a great thing for both attackers and defenders to learn how to use because so much can be done and really stay obfuscated in, in the way that it's being used. Um, are I guess, are, are you seeing it as kind of the, the next scripting language that really you would want people to have, have deep knowledge in? Yeah, if I was uh, anyone coming out of college now or entering college or beginning their career, I'd say not to get in a language war because I've learned plenty. PowerShell or Python or both would be fine choices in this industry. Now, this industry, meaning InfoSec, um, you know, Python, especially any kind of pen testing stuff, almost all the tools are Python now. Uh, one of the reasons I ported Deep Blue CLI, when I ported it to Linux, I ported it to Python for that reason. Um, and yeah, PowerShell is just amazing. And coming from a Unix background, it, it, there's a learning curve there. It probably would have been easier to learn in some respects, not knowing any programming languages, because I kind of had to unlearn some, like pipes pass objects, not text. And if you're new to all this, you wouldn't care about that, but learning it the old way or the, the other way hurt my brain a bit. Um, but yeah, PowerShell is amazing. And all the, uh, the, the leading edge malware is going there. It's crazy, crazy powerful. And, um, you know, one of the things is I get, you know, older in my, you know, well, my age and my career, um, you want to make sure you keep learning stuff. You want to, you know, and I've learned plenty of programming languages, but when I first started learning PowerShell, you have that awkward, awkward, fumbly feeling learning a new language. You know, every line of code was like four Google searches to 
get there and that painful <laughs> right. like awkward like if it was only python I'd be, i would have done an hour ago and you just you feel dumb and awkward and a lot of people don't like that feeling i've learned to embrace that feeling because that means you're learning and if it's if you're writing at the speed you can type which describes probably me and pearl you're not learning learning anything anymore and you know um powershell and it it just it's it's good to take on new things so coming out of college new in your career or looking to pick up programming or looking to pick up something else i'd say depending on where you focus either powershell or python or both you know kind of along those those lines of advice i mean obviously with your your teaching schedule you must see uh, quite a few students what would you say is a common question uh career advice question that students come and ask you Sure. So by the time, you know, we see folks, if, if they're going to Sands, usually they, they've been in the industry a little bit because it's, it's not cheap, as we all know. Although it, it's, it is fun running around with like the DerbyCon crowd because that's a, that's a different overall younger crowd. Um, most people are in the industry, but they're, they're looking to make some sort of a move um, to a different discipline. We get those questions constantly. Uh, how do I break into pen testing? How do I break into threat hunting? How do I, you know, how do I change from whatever I'm doing now? And it, if you talk to the folks, uh, often the company they're at is a bit rigid or it's, it's not super conducive to those lateral moves. Not all, some companies are, some companies aren't. Some companies make it hard to switch from like the auditing team to the pen testing team, for example, which is a typical lateral move people want to make. And what I tell everyone is keyboard time. Get the keyboard time. And it's funny, one of the things, um, you know, we talk about passion in the industry and, and I think to be good – uh, certainly great at this, you have to be passionate. Now, some people misunderstand what I mean by passionate. By passionate, I don't mean working 16-hour days. That's not how I define passion. And I think Silicon Valley and startups abuse that. Hey, we're passionate, so you're going to work 80 hours hour weeks. That's not what I mean. By passionate, I mean you're interested beyond 9 to 5. When you go home on weekends, this is something you're interested in because you're going to spend 40 years of your life doing something, hopefully in a career, it's a lot more fun if you enjoy it, right? <laughs> it's just going to be better and easier if you enjoy it. You know, I think Malcolm Gladwell said 10,000 hours to become an expert. And uh, it's a lot easier. I find that to be true, which is five five years full time, assuming you're doing 2,000 hours a, a year. Um, it's a lot easier to put in 10,000 hours if you enjoy it. You know, if we in our careers for, you know, 40 years or so, ideally, um, it'd be a lot more fun if you enjoy it. So when people ask me lateral move, and, and I think my career speaks to this. Now I came up when it was much less you know, structured, but um, I, I, no one can stop you, I believe, if you have a passion and you pursue that passion. In this industry specifically, maybe in other industries you can get stopped, but in this industry, maybe not for your employer, but for, you, for this industry, if you're passionate about something and you dedicate yourself to it and you get good at it, no one can stop you. Now, maybe your employer is not interested in that, or maybe your employer does not have that lateral or upward move, but another one does. And, you know, when I've just passionately pursued things, like I remember when we got hacked at that, that Japanese research lab, and I said, I want to do full-time InfoSec, which in 93 was a crazy, crazy outlandish statement because that didn't exist then, you know? And I turned to my boss, I'm like, I love this. Incident handling, I love this. I want to do this. And my boss is like, we don't have full-time incident handling, no. And how about you program more? And I just, I just wanted to do incident handling. I wanted to do security, and I just started beating the 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 bushes and job posts. Now, hopefully, you can do this within your own employer, and hopefully, this. But you know, in my case, that wasn't always true. So if you want to, again, when we see people at Sands, they tend to be in the industry somewhere, often looking to make that lateral move, and it's also. I don't say this to them. It's also a little bit of a test. Like if I say, hey, take on the holiday hack on your own time. I don't mean at work. I mean on a weekend. That's kind of a test. 
if they don't do it because that's more work, then, well, you know, oh, well. But if they do it and they love it and they enjoy it. So there's a little bit of a test in there where go do this thing on the side. And if you like it, do it more. And then, and then like you know, we mentioned getting certs, self-studying for certs. Yeah, I've self-studied for plenty of certs. CISSP, uh, now lapsed to be clear. CISSP is current, I want to be clear, but <laughs> I said that wrong. CISSP is current, but I have other certs that I've let lapse. CCNA, I got that. I inherited a team of network engineers and I didn't know what, they kept telling me that setting up like a switch was going to take four hours and that, that seemed <laughs> ridiculous to me. And I'm like, well, how, how hard could it possibly, and I didn't know. I thought configuring a switch was kind of like, I thought Cisco iOS in my mind was like a Unix command line, just just different syntax, but roughly orders of magnitude, the same difficulty. And I believe that to be true. And so I went out, got my CCNA, I self-studied for it because I want to know if these jokers were serious or not, and they weren't. Um, and so if you're passionate about something, and like you mentioned the OSCP, that's a great one. That's on my list, actually. Um, you can do that one that's a non-sans syrup, by the way. I'm not a total homer here, but uh, you know, it's a thousand and change for the cheap version. It ends at a 24-hour pen test, and that's on my list. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge that one or, or go through that as well. So if you did a bunch of holiday hacks, I'm talking about pen testing specifically now, and took on the OSCP and passed that. I don't care what your full-time job is. You're gonna have people interested in you for sure. Yeah, I think that's that's you know, it's interesting. It's been the kind of overriding theme of the podcast since I started uh, going back to the first episode almost a year ago. Is it's the passion to you know do this outside of a nine to five. Like it's it's kind of gets into your blood a little bit, and uh, you find yourself thinking about it and doing it. Uh, when you're at work, not at work, you, you think about InfoSec and new ways right. because it's, you have that puzzle solving mindset that you want to keep trying to figure things out. Um, and it's, it's so ingrained to the industry and how the personalities have to, uh, the kind of personality you need for it. Yeah, I totally agree. That's why it, again, it's it, people picking on BAs. The, the best network engineer I've ever met was a Berkeley school of music graduate, you know, and um, there is something to be said for the kind of left brain, right brain balance, you know, if you want to use that metaphor, where a lot of what we do is, you know, hard facts and figures and very kind of methodical. But many forms of infosec, whether it's pen testing or threat hunting or other things, requires or incident handling requires that imagination, that intuition, that puzzle solving that you mentioned. That's one of the things I'm really drawn to. I do puzzles. I do crossword puzzles. My, my new addition is these meta crossword puzzles. Check those out if you like crosswords, <laughs> which is a puzzle and a puzzle kind of a thing, a, a layer beneath hidden. I love that stuff. And I like this industry because not, not, no, auditing is not always like that, of course, but many parts are that that puzzle solving. Um, I, you know, a lot of us find it very gratifying and our brains work that way, whether we're at work or not. That's for sure. It's, it's an industry where you, you very rarely get bored. <laughs> not for long, right. Yeah, so where, uh, where can people find you these days? So, well, uh, website's ericconrad.com. My uh, Twitter handle is eric underscore conrad. If you just Google Eric Conrad, I'm, I'm the first hit. Um, and um, I'll be uh, next gig. Um, it's going to be uh, San San Diego in a few weeks. But um, all, if you go to ericconrad.com, my teaching schedule's there. I'm all over the world with SANS. I'm planning on going to DerbyCon 9 uh, next year. I'll certainly pitch a talk. I know it's stiff odds, but I'll... Um, I'll, um, I'll hopefully get into that and hopefully I'll see them somewhere. See you folks somewhere. That'd be great. I'll make sure I put all that, that information on the sh in the show notes uh, so people can find you, uh, find you online. Awesome. Eric, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much for joining us on Cybersecurity Interviews. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. 
There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.